Thank you so much for being a listener of the Deep Believer Show. We love our listeners, we pray for our listeners, and we love to hear from our listeners. So if you have anything you'd like to say, if you have any testimonies, or if you have any questions, leave us a voice message. We'd love to hear from you. Again, we would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for being a listener of The Deep Believer Show. Hi, everyone. This is Jennifer Bagnashi with Deep Believer. Today, our guest died after a medical procedure that was supposed to be very small. But before this, her husband committed suicide, causing her to go into a deep depression. Soon after that, she was diagnosed with cancer, which caused her to have this procedure. But during this procedure, she died and went to heaven. Her name is Rosemary Thornton. Rosemary, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. So Rosemary, tell us about your husband. Let's start with that. So you and your husband are married and he's a very successful person in your town. And tell us what happened. What happened? What caused him to commit suicide, if you know, and what happened with your life after? Yeah, unfortunately, as is often the case, the answers, the specific answers for why he did this died with him. Uh, as to what happened to me, well, I, I guess I should preface it by saying I thought this man was the love of my life. I had been married once before. I had been married for 24 years and had poured an awful lot of prayers into that marriage, and yet it, it ended in divorce. And in the five years that I was single, I did a lot of praying. I really wanted to be married again. I saw that there were many blessings to being in a reciprocal relationship. And I met this man, and I really thought it was uh, divinely orchestrated or even authorized it felt it felt like very much the right thing to do and he really was the answer to my prayers i had a four-page mission statement single space typed out of what i wanted in a man and this guy checked all the boxes literally and i was very precise and specific the only thing he didn't check i wanted a guy that was at least six feet tall because i was five nine and i didn't i didn't want to you know be able to kiss him on top of his head so but when uh my husband my second husband to be shut up he was actually two inches shorter than me but I found that that stuff really doesn't matter as we were talking about just a moment ago um, the bible verse from Samuel man looketh on the outward appearance but the Lord looketh on the heart and this man had so many qualities and you know it's interesting I had focused on qualities more than five foot uh, you know five foot two and eyes of blue I wanted a man of integrity of honesty a man that that cared about others you know I, I really looked at qualities so uh, we were married 10 years, and there was really no warning. I mean, I am a former newspaper reporter. I've written, well, now 10 books. At the time, I had written six books. I've always thought of myself as something of a smart cookie and very sensitive, and there was really no warning. There were no signs, uh, no suggestion of anything. It just happened. And I was thrown into a, a deep shock. I mean, he did this with a gun. He did it at home. And I am extremely sensitive anyway, and not to mention losing the man you thought was the love of your life. In fact, the day before his suicide, we were standing in the kitchen of our home, and he was in front of the refrigerator, and he said, I'll be dead soon. And I was, I was shocked. I didn't know if he was having chest pain. I you know, didn't know if he'd been diagnosed with something. I had no idea what was happening. And I remember I literally, he was in the kitchen in front of our big refrigerator. I literally pushed him into the refrigerator and I said, take it back, take it back, take it back. I, I, you must know I can't live without you. You must know that you are the love of my life and I'll never, I'll never find anybody like you. And I mean, we used to go to bed at night early so we could lie in bed and read books to each other. Uh, we loved the same cerebral television shows. We would watch Downton Abbey until I could recite Lady Mary and he could recite the lines from Matthew. We were really very uniquely suited to each other. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I'm actually in the middle of doing kind of a little research on the Bible where I look at all the uses of the word, of, of the word, word. You know, and my favorite was in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. When we speak words over ourselves like that, like I'll be dead soon, I knew it was very dangerous. I knew that was something going on. So I said, take it back, take it back, take it back. And I said, you must know I pray for you every single day. In fact, I prayed for him at least twice a day in the morning and the evening. 
And then, uh, so yeah, it, it, and then Monday morning, uh, the morning after that, uh, he did this thing. So it put me in a state. I pretty much lost my mind. It was uh, very bad. I, you know, it's one thing to, um, I guess I had a psychotic break, maybe a nervous breakdown. I don't know. But when I had had some success in life on my books, the, the book I wrote was The Houses That Sears Built. And that book took me many places. I gave 200 talks in 25 states. I had some success. I made it to, I was on History Detectives. I was on CBS Sunday Morning News. I had a lot, I had a really good run with that book. Um, I made it to every major United, uh, U.S. newspaper. Uh, I even made it to BBC Radio. So I had a really good run, had a fun career. And so for this to happen and then to end up living out of my car briefly, it's pretty humiliating to go from having some success in life to being such a mess that you can't even care for yourself. I, having had some success with my book, The Houses That Sears Built, I was something of a strong woman because that book, that topic was pretty much unknown until my book came out and it, it became very successful. And that was a source of much joy. So I, to, to go from that to this was a pretty dramatic juxtaposition. And I got the call that this had happened, you know, going back a little bit, I got the call that he had done this when I was out of town in Boston. So I was actually in Boston when I found out what had happened and I had to take a couple planes to get back home. I was living on the East Coast at the time. And my second flight was from Baltimore. And I, uh, finding a flight at the last minute was extremely difficult, not to mention the, my mental state. My mental state was very poor, to say the least. But I made it through security and, uh, I ended up on a Southwest Airlines flight and the, the folks at Southwest showed me so much kindness, even just getting me a ticket. But they gave me a boarding pass and they said, we got a flight leaving in about a minute, but run. And they did hold the plane for me, which was so dear. I, I didn't even know airlines did that, but Southwest did. And I remember I went running down the corridor of the long airport uh, at BWI. And as I approached the gate agent with my boarding pass in hand, she kind of yelled out, are you Mrs. Thornton? And I said, yes. And she said, keep running. And literally the minute I crossed the threshold into that plane and swam the door shut, well, there was one seat left on this. I think it was a 737-700, one seat left on the whole plane. And I sat down in that seat and I was just like, oh, at least I'm on a plane. I'm heading home. The worst was being between airports for trying to figure out how to get home. So I sat down and I was next to this uh, guy and he was kind of a kind of an interesting looking cat. He had on a he had on a black leather vest and a white T-shirt and quite a few tattoos going on. And I was staring straight ahead, trying to compose myself. I mean, I wasn't crying. I was in shock. I was in severe shock, probably. And he said, uh, are you OK? Which, is, again, is a very generous thing to say to somebody that just, you know, plopped on a plane and they've been holding the plane anyway. And I said, not really. I said, I just got word that my husband ended his life and that he had called me. My husband had called me right before this happened. And there was a very ugly argument. And my husband said some things that should not have been said and then hung up on me. And then this happened. And I told this to the man seating, sitting in the uh, airplane beside me and he said he, he was very thoughtful for a moment but he said I want you to remember this the rest of your life but he said the angels are watching over you right now and he said my mother did almost the same exact thing she called me one day she started an argument she said angry things that should not have been said and then she uh, put a gun to her head and he said so this is not coincidence that you end up sitting next to me on this overbooked Southwest flight. And he said, he outlined a path to healing. And he said, there's going to be a day when you make it 15 minutes without thinking that this has ruined your life and your life is over. There's going to be a day where you make it an hour without thinking, how could I have done this to him? And there's going to be a day, one day when you make it maybe 12 hours and realize that you see a little light. And then they'll, one day there'll be 24 hours when you don't blame yourself for what just happened. And he said, it's going to take you some time, but you will find peace in time. And you'll never be the person you were before this. And I have recounted that and thought about that so many times. I mean, you talk about, they say a coincidence is a miracle where God chooses to remain anonymous. <laughs> that was a miracle. And uh, so 
my life was a mess. I moved a friend up. I was actually getting pretty comfortable sleeping in my car because we're I, I, very generous people offered to take me into their homes. And you know what's really interesting about this is the people offered to take me into their homes did not have a what I guess we call a religious based faith system. And so I was too much. I was just too much for them. But then my friend Tracy showed up and she had been a friend on the periphery of my life. But she was a very devout believer, a very generous soul. And she said, uh, I'm not comfortable with you being in this car. This isn't going to work. And I said, I basically said, leave me alone. You know, I've tried being in people's houses. It doesn't work. And then she said, we'll try it for one night. And one night turned into four months. Now, Rosemary, how did you end up living in your car? Because prior you were living in your home. So how did you even end up living in your car? Well, it was a very brief period because of Tracy. It was probably just two or three days, but I couldn't get comfortable anywhere. I felt, in fact, the analogy that came to my thought was I felt like an animal that had been shot in the tummy. There was no position I could find physically in which I was comfortable and no position I could find mentally that I was comfortable. And I would often go sit in churches during the day and just sit in the well-worn pews and pray. And my prayers were pretty primitive. My prayers were, in fact, I share this every day. I prayed three prayers, God, either heal me or let me die. When I do die, because I knew it wouldn't be long, spare me the life of you. And three, I can't face any more decisions. When my husband died, he left behind some things that had, had, to, be, had to be managed legally. So I had to spend some time with lawyers getting a lot of messes untangled. And these, these all required significant decisions. I was broken to a point that I bought myself 10 white polo shirts and four pairs of jeans. So in the morning, I didn't have to make any decisions about what to wear. I simply grabbed a white polo shirt and a pair of jeans and I was done. So those were my three daily prayers. I spent a lot of time sitting in churches because I felt safe. I felt very, very safe. And then at night, I would go spend the night at Tracy's. But the way I came to be living there was I was having a psychotic break. I couldn't find peace. I couldn't find a modicum of peace. And uh, my car felt very comfortable. It was a nice car. It was a Camry. It had heated leather seats, sunroof, and you know Bose sound system. So actually, it was JBL. But it was a really nice car. And so it was very comfortable. And I didn't want to be around people. And you know, in the car, I could look up and I could see the trees swaying in the wind. And I found immense comfort in that. I could see the sunlight coming through the sunroof. And I found great comfort in that. But in somebody's home, it didn't work. Absolutely didn't work. But Tracy, the way Tracy changed the equation, the first night I came to her house, they sat down to have dinner, she and her husband and me. And I looked at a plate full of food and I, I felt a wave of panic because I thought nobody told her I, I still can't swallow solid food. I was living on uh, nutritional supplements at this time. And <clears throat> Tracy said, um, she said, we're just, we're just going to see how you do. And I, I whispered to her, Tracy, I can't, I can't eat. I'm sorry. It's beautiful. It's, it, it's a lovely thing you've offered, but I can't eat. And Tracy said, well, we're going to start with a prayer. And she held my hand and we, she said, God, you know, bless this food in Jesus name. And she said, and, and please help Rosemary. And just hearing somebody say a verbal prayer for me like that, it really got me. I was like, wow, somebody cares if I live or die because my, my husband's life was filled with fancy people. And after this happened, they ran away and it's okay. When a trauma of this level hits you, nobody knows what to do. But you know the people who ran into the fray were the people that society might define as those being at the lower rungs of the socioeconomic ladder. They were the people who had knew, known trauma and hardship and pain and suffering. And I made a whole new set of friends that literally ran into the house on fire that was me and said, let me help. And it's truly amazing to me. And I, I know I mentioned I wrote this new book about my experience, and I don't like writing. I've written nine books. I don't like writing. I've been a reporter. I've been a magazine writer. I've done all kinds of writing. I don't like writing. But I realized <laughs> this book is basically a thank you note to the people who helped me and a way for me to say, here's what happened to me. I found my way out of the dark, and maybe my story will be a blessing to others. It's the only way I got talked into writing this book. So Tracy was very kind to me, and to hear somebody pray for me touched me to tears. And, you know, I ate about 50% of that meal. And that was the first solid food I'd had probably in, I guess, three weeks. And I slept in the bed in her back bedroom. And every day she'd say, let's try it one more night. She did that for four months. And she worked a very difficult job. She was gone 12 hours a day. When she, she said, when she would come home at the end of the day, I was lying in bed, asleep in the dark in the spare bedroom. And she said, you would be writhing, moaning, crying in your sleep. And she said, the sounds you made were heartbreaking. 
And she said, I would stand to the foot of the bed and I would just pray for you until the writhing stopped and the moaning stopped and the crying stopped. And she said, and your breathing would even out and you would settle into a peaceful sleep. And she said, and then I would go off to bed. I mean, that's some heavy duty love there. She could not have shown me any more love and compassion if I were her own sweet daughter. And this was a person that really literally was on the periphery of my life that stepped in to save me. And as we were talking about a little bit earlier, if, uh, if anything I do in this life, my book, my words, anything is a blessing to others, it's because of Tracy and then the other friend that I lived with that was my caretaker. I literally lost the ability to care for myself. So uh, 29 months went this way. Well, after four months with Tracy, I moved in with a friend who really wasn't just a friend. He shared expenses, expenses and he also took care of me. He also would make dinner every single night. And he would literally follow me around the house with a plate of food. And he said, please eat one bite. You know, it's been, it's been a day and a half since you ate. Please just eat one bite. And, you know, after you've been kind of fluffy your whole life, it's kind of nice for somebody to say, please eat. You know, you're like, wait, say that again. Did, did you ask me to eat? <laughs> it was great. <laughs> and I move again, divine, divine timing, divine coincidence. He and I moved into a rental house in a, in a neighborhood, uh, an okay neighborhood, you know, working class neighborhood, a nice neighborhood. And uh, a woman knocked on the door one day and uh, she introduced herself and she said, I live across the street. And she had brought me a plate of Rice Krispie treats. Now, who doesn't love Rice Krispie I treats? I love Rice Krispie treats. It's like my favorite. And I thought, okay, somebody told her that I love, you know, the angels told her. So I was so grateful to her. And and we had just moved, so this was about four and a half months in after my husband's suicide. And uh, we got to talking, I introduced myself, and I was still very raw. I was still a hot mess, frankly. And I said, uh, I don't, I feel bad even telling this, but I said, um, I I moved here because my husband killed himself, and I'm, I'm my friend's living with me because I can't even take care of myself. Well, this young woman who had so sweetly brought me a plate of food burst into tears, and I thought. I thought to myself, thinking about myself, I thought, you idiot, why did you upset this girl? You know, here she is showing you such love. And, and you said, and I, and I have now learned this. I have learned this lesson very well. When somebody bursts into tears, it means they've lost somebody themselves to suicide. And after she stopped crying, she said, my brother killed himself and it eviscerated our family and we can't seem to get over it. And it was two years ago. So she said, I understand a little something of what you're going through. And then she said, you look pretty gaunt. Are you eating? I said, no. And she said, I cook too much every night. She said, I will bring you a tray of food every other night, enough for two nights until you tell me to stop. And sure enough, every night, 5 to 5.30, she walked across the street with a tray of Tupperware. And you know, I had the five little compartments. It was a Tupperware thing. And she had a snap-on lid. And every night for weeks, she brought me a tray of food. And that's how I started eating again, wow. was to just have somebody bring you food. And it was all delicious. And she wouldn't let me pay her. So I ended up buying some gift cards to a local grocery store. But that's that's what we're supposed to be doing for each other. That is a real Jesus move. It's not saying, oh, let me know if I can do anything for you. It's here's some meatloaf and you know mashed potatoes and a homemade biscuit. And I, I don't know. It's so profound to do that for a total stranger. And again, you know, if, if my story blesses one person, if it helps one person on this earth, it's, it's Jenny and Tracy and, and all these other people who rallied to save me. And that's what Christianity is supposed to be at its core. You know, I heard somebody say uh, in Christian churches, sometimes when we say, I'll pray for you, it's a lazy Christian's way of, uh, of, of uh, not wanting to bother with bringing you a casserole. <laughs> so. Oh my gosh, it's so true. It's so true though. <laughs> do something, right? We just, we've, yeah. we've got to do something. And say, if you, tell me if you need anything. No, no, no. Don't say, tell me if you need anything. Say, I will bring you dinner every other night. Mm -hmm. Say, I can take your dog out for a walk. Or I'll walk with you. Or let's just sit together and read the Bible together, which is what I ask people to do for me more than anything else, was you know, read the Bible to me. And in fact, uh, early on in the experience, somebody read to me First Corinthians 10, 13, which is God will show you a way out. And I interpreted that in my head to mean I'm getting out of this, like by dying. So anyway, uh, so 29 months went this way. And then I started having some unusual physical problems. I went to a doctor. They referred me to an oncologist, and I was diagnosed with cervical cancer stage two. And in fact, upon physical examination, the doctor noted 
that the disease had advanced to a point where the flesh was distorted. So there was no doubt what was going on. And I mean, I went to the doctor because I had a litany of bizarre female problems. I knew something, you know, hey, you know, something's wrong, which is, I, I never go to doctors anyway, but that's how I felt. I knew, I knew I had to do something. So it was actually during a surgical biopsy. They were um, doing a surgical biopsy to determine how far the cancer had spread. And I had awakened from that uh, biopsy and, you know, off you go, off to the bathroom. We need this bed. And uh, when I came from the bathroom, I told the RN, I'm bleeding way too much. And she said, once you get home and lie down, you'll feel fine. And I, I don't know if you and I were discussing this, but did you know, and this is an old statistic from probably 15 years ago, women as a proportion are more likely to die from a cardiac event than a man. Because when we have a heart attack and we feel jaw pain or radiant, whatever, we're said, oh, that's anxiety. You just need to go home and rest and you'll be fine. Oh, I didn't know so that. we have a high, and again, it's an old statistic, but women have a higher rate of dying from cardiac events because we're dismissed. And oh. so three times I told this RN, I am bleeding profusely. And I was pretty blunt at one point. I said, I'm 59 years old. I know what's right and what's wrong. And this is an awful lot of blood. But she said, once you get home, you'll feel better. Go home and lay down. You'll feel fine. And so I did as instructor. I got home. It wasn't getting better. It just got worse. And uh, I have almost white carpet in my pretty little white, in my pretty little um, house in the suburbs. And of course, bleeding to death. You don't want to mess up your carpet. We're also well behaved, aren't we? So I was very nervous about messing up the carpet. <laughs> That's really nice carpet, you know? You liked your white carpet. I know. It's like, how are you going to get this stain out? You know, this is, this is worse than dying, I guess, literally, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so I, chew anyway, I walked into my bathroom. I had a nice shower. I walked in the shower and just, I stood there and, you know, I thought at least tile can be cleaned up, carpet, not so much. And I thought as I was bleeding, still bleeding profusely, I thought to myself, you know, first Corinthians 10, 13, God will show you a way out. And I thought, this is it. This is my way out. All I have to do is sit down on the shower floor and I'm done. I have, I have been struggling with suicidal ideation. I was tired of life. I was tired of being treated like a leper. Suicide prevention comments set my hair on fire because uh, people like me, suicide widows who've lost a spouse to suicide are 12 to 48 times more likely to end our own life. And yet what does society do with us? They shun us. They say, stay away from me. They cut us off. They don't return our phone calls. One of my friends, I called him three weeks after my husband's suicide. I still have a text from him. He said, I'll call you back when my phone charges. That was May 3rd, 2016. Apparently, he's got one of those trickle charges. <laughs> it takes a really long time. Because I his never. His phone died permanently. It's just a permanently. Yeah. Phone. I never back from him. And that's common. So. <laughs> You know, we've got a known risk group. Why aren't we doing something? But yes, we get shunned. We get treated like a leper. Nobody knows what to do. We scare people. You know, when my, at my husband's visitation, and it was a closed casket for obvious reasons, the funeral home charged me $14,000 to put him back together and then said his remains are not suitable for viewing. True story. What? I'm sorry. That's crazy. $14,000. Were you reimbursed because the casket was closed or? No, gosh, no, silly girl. <laughs> no, I, it's one of, one of my goals. If, if my book has any success, I, I have a deep desire in my heart to start a group, an advocacy group for suicide survivors because we're out of our mind. Mm -hmm. And guess what? We get questioned by the cops. I just found out in the last few weeks that the cops came to our door to question me. I mean, they questioned me on the uh, when I was on the tarmac in the Southwest plain, they called me up and said, what was the nature of your last argument with him? And I said, what? They said, what was the nature of your last argument with him? I said, I, I don't understand the question. And they said, well, obviously something happened. Well, so how yeah, did wives find out? No, no. I mean, while we were on the tarmac and I had my little cell phone oh, and I we're, see. you know, we're, we're getting ready to take off down the tarmac, my phone rings and I answer it because my phone was ringing a lot right then. And I answered it and said, this is Sergeant so-and-so with the blah, blah police department. We need to talk to you about your husband's death. And by the way, that's very common is a su survivor, the suicide widow or widower is, is the first suspect. So it's not like he died in a hospital bed with, oh, honey, I'll see you in heaven. It's we're questioned. We're held accountable for his death. And that is 
absolutely typical. So if I was queen of the world, and I hope it won't be long, I'm going to set up an advocacy group seriously for women to have somebody to sit with them and say to the cops, wait, you're not going to question her because she's obviously in shock. Mm-hmm. So stop with this and let's, you know, let's figure out a solution. But yeah, I found out the cops came to my home multiple times to question me and my children deflected them. So that's, you know, reason one of many. And, you know, back in the day in the, I mean, I'm, so I was born in 59, but I remember in the 60s and 70s, if, if a woman was sexually assaulted, it was, well, why were you on the street at two in the morning? Why were you wearing that miniskirt? Why were you wearing those heels? What did you think would happen? But then we'd establish advocacy groups for victims of sexual assault. We need to do the same for suicide widows. They're still just jumped on by law enforcement. And it's wrong. But anyway, I digress. So, uh, yeah, the cops have questioned me. So, uh, back at the white shower there, I'm bleeding out. I know I'm bleeding out. I thought, you know what? This is my path out. This is First Corinthians 10, 13. God will show me the way out. This is it. Sit down. It's over. You'll bleed to death very soon. Because I had lost a phenomenal amount of blood. And, I mean, my friend, I had two friends with me. They're identified in the book as Effie and Millie. And they had taken me to the hospital and brought me home. And I was literally standing in that shower watching myself bleed to death. And I thought, just sit down. This will end. And you won't have done it to yourself. In fact, you have sought medical care to stop this cancer. So no one will blame you. And as I thought about that, I thought, is that really fair to these two people? And one of them, the one I identify as Effie, had been the one that took care of me for two years. He'd been my caregiver in my home. And a friend. A caregiver's not a fair word. He also been a friend. And I thought, you know, they've worked so hard to keep me alive. Is it really fair for me to give up now? And I thought about this quite a bit. And I thought, I guess it isn't. And so I I pushed out of that, pushed off that wall and went out into the living room and said, I'll wrap myself up in towels. I said, call 911. I'm bleeding to death. And they did. Taken to a little ER, standalone ER, standalone ER, not physically connected to a hospital. More mistakes were made. At that little ER, uh, was a very young doctor. The nurse to my left was about my age, and I was crying because I was very frightened. One, I wasn't even sure I'd done the right thing in agreeing to medical care, you know. But secondly, um, I also thought, you know, okay, I've agreed to live. Let's get this show on the road. Don't let Philmony just keep bleeding out. But anyway, this nurse took my hand, and she looked in my eyes, and she was so motherly, just so maternal and gentle with me, and she said, I, I had grabbed her hand. I said, promise me you're not going to let me die. And she said, oh, honey, we have many solutions for this. We're not going to let you die. I was comforted by that. And then they gave me some painkiller. And unfortunately, they made some boo-boos. And uh, they left me alone in that room. And again, my friend Effie was with me. He was at my left. And uh, he said that at one point he looked at the blood pressure cuff and it went to 32 over 25. And he knew I was pretty much gone at that point. But he stood up to go get help. And then uh, he said, I tried to sit up. And my eyes popped open. I had been unconscious. My eyes popped open. I tried to sit up on the gurney. He said, you you could not sit up, but you reached your arms up to heaven and talked to somebody only you could see. And you don't remember any cool. of this. I do not remember any of that. But he said, you reached up to heaven. And he said, uh, you wiggled your fingers as if you were reaching up for, uh, you know, like a parent to pick you up. And he said, after that, your hands flopped down to your side. And he said, and then your blood pressure went to error, which meant it was lower than 32 over 25. And meanwhile, I'm having a great time. <laughs> I was in a deep, dreamless state during this time. I was unconscious. But I remember waking up as my soul left my body. And my soul was literally catapulted out of my body. It was very dramatic. It was right on the cusp of being jarring, but not jarring. And it was great. It was so fun. It was a blast. And I mean, I was just went fling, just pop. And you know, at the moment my soul left my body, I heard, um, I've heard others descri- describe it as a pop or a ping. One author described it as a stone, as the sound a stone makes when it hits a, a small brook. And that's a good description, but I heard this pop. I was like, whoa. And I was just slowly catapulted. Very, and I, I remember feeling like there was a silvery, sinewy strand from the crown of my head to the heel of my foot. And it was like an archer's bow that somebody had pulled back on and let loose. And with that, that's when my soul went flying out. And so I was catapulted into this perfect blackness. 
And it was just so fun. And I was floating. And I mean, I'm that person that when I sit in the passenger seat of the car, I'm like, you're going to miss the light. Oh, turn right here. Oh, slow down, speed up, you know? And I was floating and I was so happy, just so happy. And I'm looking back, I'm like, I didn't know where we were going. I don't know what's, you know, I don't know what path we're on, but I'm like, oh, this is great. And, you know, there were so many things that happened instantly, but one of them was, it was like this whole 59 years on earth was like a dream. It was like waking up from a very intense dream. And those 59 years felt like they had been that long, felt like it'd been a second. And I thought all those problems and all those worries and all that crap I took so seriously. And you know what? It was pretty darn in, inconsequential. And I thought, wow, I, I put so much weight and heaviness on that earth experience. And it turns out it wasn't any big deal. And now it's over. And the other thing very early on, I thought, I'm dying. And then I thought, well, actually, you're not dying. You're dead. <laughs> and I thought, that's pretty funny. And I laughed out loud and I heard my giggle. And I also thought, you know, I don't have breath sounds. I'm pretty sure I don't have vocal cords and I don't know about ears and the rest or yeah, ears. I'm, but I'm producing sound and I'm hearing the sound and I sound like I've always sounded. I sound like me. And I even had my, and I thought it was pretty cool. I still had my bizarre sense of humor that, you know, here I am going on to my reward and I'm correcting my tense because the most important thing when you're dying is making sure your English is proper. And I thought it's pretty darn funny that I'm doing that as I'm dying. So it, I realized at that moment that every single thing we are goes with us and that literally there is no death. And that may not be true for the people left behind because they're experiencing your absence. But for the person having the experience, there is no death. And I thought every single thing I am, my memories, all of it, I thought about Bible verses. I thought that's so cool because my brain is laying back on that gurney, pretty much seven pounds of hamburger meat that no, no longer has blood or oxygen. But I remember the Bible verses, you know, I remember everything. And I even thought about the fact that I had struggled so mightily with suicidal ideation. You know, I thought I, I had a plan. I knew how I was going to kill myself and I would fantasize about that, which is twisted. I know, but when you get that dark, that down in the hole, I was pretty messed up. So I was, I was so grateful to be dead and so grateful that I had not done this to myself. And, and I thought it was pretty cool. I thought about my husband's suicide and how much pain that had caused me and that I hadn't done that to my children. I hadn't done that to my family, that this was a medical mis This would be diagnosed as a medical mistake that took my life. And I was so comforted by that. And there were so many thoughts that came into me from so many places all at once. I guess one of the very first thoughts was my heart has stopped. I, I said that, physically said that. People, people have said, well, you were telepathically communicating. No, no, no. I lived alone with a dog for a long time. And I talked to the dog and I talked to me and I talked to the worm outside and I talked to the little fly I catch to take him outside. I talked to everything about it. I talk out loud all the time. I was talking out loud and I heard myself talk. So one of the first things I said was my heart had stopped. And I said, how do I know? that I, said, I don't know but i know that's right and by the way later there would be a medical affirmation that that technically is what happened i ran out of blood and my heart just stopped what's amazing to me is that when you say your soul left your body you were in your right mind you were able to reason you were able to think you were able to have memories all that stuff it, it you know because like sometimes when people think okay when a person dies they just fall asleep you know you were asleep at first but then you felt yourself leave but the fact that you were yourself, how you remembered everything, how, now, did you have all your five senses or did it feel like you have had more senses? It really felt like my whole life, my brain had been working at 60 amps and that now it was working at 100,000 amps. It literally did. I was thinking many, many, many thoughts at once in many directions. And that's why a timeline is so difficult. I was dead without a heartbeat for more than 10 minutes, but how long was I there? If you told me I was there two months, I would have believed it. It's just so difficult to define and explain that. But yeah, one of my early thoughts, and again, the timeline is difficult, but I recognized as I was floating that I felt the presence of somebody very tall to my left. And I was floating in this perfect blackness. You asked about my senses. One thing did impress me. I mean, I, I've written all these books, one book I wrote took six years of research. So I pay attention to details. One book took four years. But one of the things that impressed me was it's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's not damp. It's not dry. It's perfect. And the other thing in this blackness in which I was floating, the best way I can define it is it was actively comforting me, actively comforting me. And I heard somebody else describe it as velvet. 
that's what it felt like. It felt like an air of velvet around me that was actively comforting me. And I know so many people talk about the love, but I experienced peace. And my whole life, I've struggled with anxiety and worrying too much and ruminating over inconsequential things. But the amount of peace I felt, in fact, I thought about the Bible verse where Paul talks about the peace that passeth all understanding. And I thought, this is that peace. That's the peace I feel. Nobody could ever understand this until they experience it. And one of the thoughts I had was, I've always wondered what I would look like with no anxiety, no worries, no fears, no upset. I thought, this is the real me. This is the real person I am. And it's somewhere in this, I was joined by this massive spiritual being. And I can't say if it was he or she. Very tall to my left, slightly behind me. And I was like, ooh, there's somebody with me. And I said, literally, with a lilt in my voice, I remember I turned my head to the left and looked up, pretty interested by the fact that I'm looking over my left shoulder, which means I have something of humanesque form. And I said, and who are you? Because, you know, I'm having a good time. And the answer was immediate. And it came with an infusion of words. But the answer was, you, Rosemary, you are the image and likeness. I'm the original. And, you know, that's Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And my whole life, I had pondered that Bible verse. And I thought, what does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? But that construct that there was an original really helped me understand it. And it really did come with an infusion of knowing. And I thought my whole life, I've wondered really what that Bible verse meant. And now I have it. Now I've got it. And I remember thinking, would have been good to know back there, but that's okay. We're going on. I know we're going on, 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 on. We're not going back. And it was just, uh, it was all phenomenal. And so many, so many things happened in this experience. I thought about, I thought about the Bible verses and I was so grateful you know, after a lifetime of reading Bible verses, a lot of them just stick with you. A lot of them are in conscious memory. And I thought that was so cool that those Bible verses were the things that were coming to thought. And one of them that come, came to thought was, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I thought about that. I thought, so, you know, I'm in the presence. I'm in the presence of the God who creates things with words. And as a writer, it's pretty amazing that words have that much power. And I, there were so many thoughts coming from so many different directions. And one of the thoughts was, everything I am went with me, everything I really am, you know, the darkness, the sadness, the fears, all that stayed behind. And I thought, this is who I really am. You know, and what did I leave behind on that gurney? Nothing. You know, I know people like to say, we're spiritual beings having a human experience. I'm not sure it's even that deep. I don't think it is. I think we're spiritual beings, period. And then we have this machine that we carry around with us. And, you know, an, an interesting aside, I'm in a social media group of suicide survivors. And there are so many of us that a year or two down the road, we're diagnosed with some ghastly disease. You can't isolate people. You can't leave people on their own to deal with trauma and expect their spirit, soul, and body to not break down. And I really believe that's what happened to me, certainly. I, you know, there was no family history of anything like this. It was just too much depression. And also, you can't go around asking God every night, seriously, praying to God every night that you'll be dead soon without having a consequence. You know, prayer is effective. Prayer has, prayer has consequences. So uh, I, I've always kept a daily gratitude list of five things I'm grateful for. And I'm so grateful to be dead. And, and the peace. Oh, I just can't describe the peace. You know, I thought it was interesting that so many people talk about the love. And I had had the great blessing of a mother who loved me. She died when I was 40, so she died too young. But it had been such a blessing to know a mother's love, but I had never known peace. I had just had a tumultuous time on this earth. And to know that peace, and even now when I have big problems, I think about that peace, the peace that passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds to Christ Jesus. I just love that. So this went on for a while, and I know, you know, I don't want to, I know you have some questions, but then next thing I knew, it's like somebody took my batteries out. I don't remember going from floating in this blackness, but I was in a white room, and I was standing on my feet, or something approximating feet. I'm so angry with myself. I didn't look down at my feet. I, want, I should look to see what my feet look like. 
did I have legs? I think and I remember thinking, I remember thinking, I don't know if I have feet or legs or what, but I see the door. And I had read about NDEs my whole life. I had read every book, Betty Eady, Daniel Brinkley, George Ritchie. I'd read every book I'd get my hands on about NDE. And I knew, I saw that door across the white room. I said, I know what that door is. Out of my way. We're doing the door. I am not going back. No discussion on that point. Everybody moves. I really did. I know what's coming and it's all good. So in this white room, I would guesstimate that door was probably about 20 feet, 15, 20 feet in front of me. But in this room, there was a, a heavy white mist, almost like a London fog. But it wasn't damp. Again, it was very, very, very comfortable in this room. And it was swirling. It wasn't just falling. It was swirling and dancing around me, this fog. And I was like, that's pretty cool. But I'm, I'm like, okay, the fog is cool. I'm going for the door. But at one point, I remember I was actually the thought I had was I don't know if I have legs or feet, but I see that door and I know I can move with intention and I will perambulate toward that door. And I thought, even when you're dead, you have a good vocabulary. Because <laughs> I can't see I'm walking. So um, as I'm moving through that white mist or fog, I tried to focus on an individual droplet. And I know that sounds bizarre, but I felt like I should be able to. And at this point, I was with, I guess, an angel, a spiritual being. And I said, I want to focus on an individual droplet, but I can't. And I was told, your eyes have not acclimated to this new atmosphere yet, this new environment yet. But what you're looking at are particles of light. And they said, whether we, when we go to heaven, that we go through this spiritual car wash where all the muck of the earth is washed away. As a friend said, leave your muddy boots at the door. And I thought that was really cool. And sometimes it's sin. Sometimes maybe an amputee or somebody dies with a disease process so heavily imprinted on them, they think it's part of them, but it's not. And I just thought that was so cool. But I was told, yes, those are particles of light, and they're cleansing you and healing you and preparing you. So I approached that door, and I, I just couldn't wait. I mean, I was so excited. I couldn't wait to get to that door and go on. And I remember the door was shut. I remember thinking, I think that door is supposed to be open. Because there's an old song. It's uh, Going Home. Going home, going home, I'm just going home. Remember that song? It talks about no, me. I don't remember that song. Sounds Pardon me? I said, I don't remember that song, but it sounds beautiful. Oh. But it talks about just, it talks about going to heaven and going through an open door. And I thought that door ought to be open. But as I got close to the door, um, I put my right hand up to push through that door. Pretty interested by the fact right-handed on earth, right-handed in heaven. I thought that was cool, too. But I was putting my right hand up, and uh, I said, I paused, and I said, is this the divine will for my life? And I couldn't even get past, is this divine? And the answer was immediate, and the answer also came with an infusion of knowing. The answer was, no, it's not. But whatever you decide, you decide to go forward or you decide to go back, you go with all of God's grace and mercy and blessings and love and care. And I was told there isn't a wrong decision. And I think that was an answer to my second prayer. You know, I'm tired of making decisions. I'm tired of having to face all these decisions. And that really touched me that there isn't a wrong decision. And I thought, all right, good to know I'm doing the door. And then I was again at the door and I, I don't know the precise timing of this but one of the things that was made very clear to me is if I agreed to go back I would be restored to wholeness because you know one of my first thoughts in this experience I guess it was a first thought I had been scheduled to start a chemo class where they school you on what to experience with chemotherapy and I was supposed to have once a day radiation five days a week and I was supposed to start on cisplatin a chemo uh, once a week for six weeks. And one of my first thoughts in this experience is, that's not a problem anymore. I got out of it. You know, I may have taken a hard right turn, but I sure got out of that mess. Um, but I was told very specifically that if I agreed to go, if I decided to go back, I'd be restored to wholeness. And it wasn't said, it wasn't said, you know, A, B, or C, or you'll be healed of this or whatever. It just said you'll be restored to wholeness. So I'm at that door and I'm like, okay, good to know I'm, go I'm doing the door. <laughs> And um, at that moment, I was shown a vision of that nurse who had held my hand and who had been so motherly. And a vision isn't a strong enough way to say this. It was like I was put into a hospital 
supply room. She was sitting in like a, a medical supply room surrounded by linens and syringes and all the stuff you find in a hospital supply room, uh, bottles and such. And she was sitting on a metal stool and leaning forward with her head in her hands, sobbing. And she said, through tears, I promised that woman I wasn't going to let her die and I lost her. And I thought, all right, that looks awful. But she's an RN. She signed up for this. I'm sure she's lost a few patients. I need to go. And then this was kind of sneaky. And then I felt that woman's pain. I literally felt her pain in my body. And I realized if I can save one person that much misery, I have to go back. So put my right hand down at my side. And I remember last words I said in heaven were, uh, it's going to ruin this nurse's day if I die. And in the middle of the second, I was back on that uh, gurney with lots of people in the room now, lots of activity, lots of things happening. And uh, when I was on that gurney, and shocked really i mean I, I joke about this but i've often said you know robert's rules of order we had <laughs> we didn't even have a first or a second we certainly hadn't hit the discussion phase and i get yanked back but i remember saying i remember looking in the upper left hand corner of the room and there was an angel in that corner of the room and i looked at her and mentally i said do you know how much energy it took to die you know this was a big deal to, to for a healthy woman to go from nothing to dead in hours and the angel just kind of, angels aren't really good about answering questions sometimes. The angel just kind of looked at me and smiled and said, you're back. Hi. <laughs> and, no, but, uh, but really quickly, though, because I remember you saying that one of the first beings you saw was a being that said, I'm the original. And that reminds right. me of, of God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit in Genesis, when he said, let us make man in our own image. So who do you think that was who spoke to you? I don't have an easy answer for that. I don't know. I wish I did know, but I Do you don't. assume it's Jesus or the father. Actually, if I had, if I, I, my feeling is it was the Holy ghost. I mean, that's what I think, but I don't know. Okay. But whomever is identified in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, I think is with whom I was speaking. Uh-huh. And I'm, you know, I'm sorry. I don't have a better answer for oh. that. But then after uh, I was back in that, back in the body, um, they threw me on a gurney about as fast as another gurney, and I was transported to a trauma center. And there, uh, it was pretty cool. The next morning, the doctor came in and he said, you've had a heart attack. And I said, not me. My heart is very sound. I'm very healthy. And he said, no, actually, you lost so much blood, your heart stopped. So I was right. I did. And I was gone for more than 10 minutes. There's a lot of elements to this that are phenomenal. One of them is when, when you die from bleeding to death, which is basically what killed me, um, you can't even do CPR because you're just pushing more blood out so my brain was without oxygen or blood supply for more than 10 minutes and there were no consequences not only were there no consequences i swear i came back with an upgrade and it took some time and some effort took a second surgical biopsy and i had to find a new oncologist turns out when you tell them hey i don't need to do that chemo class chemo radiation nothing i'm out they say uh you know you give that whole healed in heaven thing they're like uh listen chemo starts next thursday be there um, so they didn't really take that very well. And then I had to find another oncologist and it took time, but ultimately there was a second surgical biopsy and she was pretty nervous about the whole thing. You know, this whole healed in heaven. I was, cause I went to go see her. I was like, healed in heaven, healed in heaven. It's great. It's so cool. It's so great. It's so cool. And she said, wait, you bled to death from a, from a surgic, from a cervical biopsy, you bled to death. And I said, yeah, you know, get past that. That's not a big deal. The big deal is I was healed in heaven. But anyway, she was very nervous about this whole thing, the second oncologist. And I had to drive an hour to find her because, you know, the local oncologists were like, wait, the great doctor hmm, said this, uh, you better start that chemo. And then the second doctor, the one I found in another faraway city, uh, my friend, again, was waiting in the waiting room when she came out of the surgery after the second surgical biopsy. And he said she literally threw her arms around his neck and said, she's right. There is not a single cell left. There is nothing there. And she took a lot of flesh from a lot of places. I was healed of the emotional angst. I had I had been pretty angry at my husband, angry at everybody. I had a lot of rage in me, a lot of rage, a lot of depression, a lot of sadness. When I came back, I knew instantly it was gone. It wasn't like I got a little better, a little better, a little better. It was just gone. It was just lifted off of me. And, you know, one of the things that happened after I was out of the hospital, I went back home and my Bible flopped open to Psalm 23. And it was like that line, he restoreth my soul, was highlighted, literally highlighted. And I looked at it, and I thought, that's the real healing. My soul was restored. Mm-hmm. And after that, I sold everything I owned, 
all my furniture, antiques, donated all my research materials, sold my car, my shiny new red car, and then sold my house, sold in two hours, which is pretty cool. And then I, uh, I moved a thousand miles and rented a room from a family member and started a new life. I do want to go back just a little bit because in our prior conversation, you mentioned how you, when you were in heaven, you asked the angel who was with you, is my husband here? And the angel was very direct with you. And I hear this a lot when I hear about testimonies and angels, it seems like they have like, I don't know, maybe the personality of Jesus when they speak to people, they just get right to the point. So what happened when you asked this angel, where's, is my husband here? Or where's my husband? Actually, that happened after I came back. Uh, When I was back, um, I was, I know people say they feel like they're 50% in that world, 50% this one. I really felt 95% in that world. So I took advantage of that spiritual intimacy to ask all the questions I had. And one of them was, where's my husband? And the answer was, um, he's with us. So that answered that. And then I said, okay, but what's he doing? What's happening with him? Did he? Did he suffer for his poor choices? And they said, um, and I asked some other things. And the answer was none of your business. I said, say what? <laughs> none of my business. <laughs> this man for whom I prayed at least you know, a couple times a day for 10 years, none of my business. And they said, you had assigned yourself to be his spiritual guardian. And I had very deeply entrenched in my thought that I had to show him that God was, was real and that Jesus Christ was more than a historical figure, but a savior. And I failed. And that was part of the guilt. I mean, it's one thing to fail yourself and think your husband kills himself because you're a lousy wife, which is something I've lived with for a while. But then to think you failed God, how do you get around that one? That was the torments of the damned. That was living in hell. And I, I know this one of my favorite Bible verses, behold, if thou make that, if you make, if I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. I had made my bed in hell. I had set up housekeeping there. I was literally living in a cesspool of self-condemnation. And, you know, I also love that one. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. I wasn't living in Christ. I was living in hell. And so, but that's what the angel said. They said, you set yourself up as his spiritual guardian. You're not, you know, you're a sheep, not a shepherd. It was never your job. Your job was to be a shining light, to show what the love of God looks like manifested in the flesh. That's your job. And they said, you know, we're very clear that the Bible says, work out your own salvation. You're trying to work out his. And I it really felt like somebody had come along with an axe and cut off the shackles that were around my ankles and my wrists. It felt like I had been set free, you know, and I, I you know, and I, I don't mean to keep quoting Bible verses, but they mean a lot to me. But, you know, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. I realized when those shackles were removed from me that I was set free permanently. I would never be entrapped by that demonic lie again that i had failed god i mean where do you go when you think you have failed a divine mission there is nowhere to go and one of the things i learned my father had been a very unkind man he abandoned uh, the family when i was 14 but even when he was at home he had pictures of his three sons my older brothers on his desk at work and i said hey dad where's a picture of rosemary i want to be a i want you to have a picture of me on your desk and he said you have to earn it, and you have done nothing with your life to earn a picture on my desk. So when you do something noteworthy, you can have your picture on my desk. Well, he left, and I, you know, he wanted nothing more to do with me. And I guess the biggest life lesson is I could never think of God as father because I've thought of God like that. I could never earn his love. I could never be good enough, whole enough, pretty enough, anything enough. And one of the things I learned from this experience is that God loves us as is, and God likes us. Everyone talks about God loves us. But God likes us, really, really likes us. And to learn that God just liked me was, again, very liberating, very freeing. And I learned there were so many questions I asked the angels in that time because I was on complete bed rest in a hospital. They didn't want me going anywhere. But I, I communed with the angels. And I would get on my knees for weeks afterwards and beg, please let the angels live with me like they did in that time. And I still hear the whispers and I still hear beautiful things. but. It was like I had their audience. I could talk to them and I could hear them. But yes, many questions were asked and answered. And I remember you mentioning that uh, you got an answer or you researched condemnation, that there is no longer condemnation in Christ. So could you just explain that a little bit too? I love that because I still struggle with self-condemnation. I, you know, I, I think it's part of just 
being a perfectionist, which again is not of God. God didn't say you're going to be perfect or else, you know. Um, I somebody quoted me that there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ. And I looked, being wordsmith, I looked up the word condemnation, and pretty much what it means is extra damned. So you're not just you're not just engaging in, oh God, I can't believe how stupid I am. I can't believe I said that thing to that person. I know better. Why am I such an idiot? It's you're damning yourself. You're extra damning yourself. And what's the what's the diametrical opposite of that? Is to bless yourself. To say I am blessed by God. God's not saying what an idiot you are. Why can't you think a little more before you speak? That's not how God talks to us. God says, you're the image and likeness. I'm the original. I mean, I guess there's some pride of ownership in that, you know? And, and when we criticize ourselves so harshly, we're criticizing, we're criticizing the artist. Amen. We're criticizing the creator. Amen. And it's still something I struggle with. And I, I don't know if you can see, I write little notes on my hands of daily Bible <laughs> verses, which is why I remember them so much. But it helps me. And, you know, the one for today, and I've had this on for a couple of days, is it just says I am. And I think you have to decide what comes after I am. You know, I am that I am. What, am, what I am, I, am, am I? Am I pure and holy and good? Am I of God? Or am I foolish and, uh, you know, not too bright? I mean, I, I have to decide. Am, am I the I am that is of God? Or am I the I am that is of this world? And I think about that a lot. Because I, I just heard a story about Fred Rogers. Somebody looked at his wife and said, you know, what's it like to be married to a saint? And she said, don't call him that. He works every day, spiritual discipline to be a better man, to be a more godly man, to listen to the voices of listen to the voice of God. When you call him a saint, you're setting all that aside. But for him to be a good man, to be a holy man, to be a decent person is work. It is work. And, and that's the experience I've been having. It's work. It's work trying to do the will of God. And like you and I were talking about before we, we started recording, the world is not in support of this kind of ministry. It doesn't say, yes, let us bless you and help you. <laughs> the world can be very unkind. I agree. I agree. And I really like what you said when you said when we speak ill of ourselves, like you said, it's as if like a pride, not a bad pride, but a pride of ownership to God you know, because we're made in his own image. And when we speak ill of ourself, it's insulting him because we were made in his image and likeness. So I love that. And then on top of you being healed, which changed your life dramatically, your hair, thank you, Jesus, cancer-free, your life also changed tremendously. You live a whole different life now. Could you tell us how your life is now? I do. Well, there were... Um... I knew things, I knew the whole world had shifted the minute I came back. Everything was so different. But one of the things, um, there was an expectation it would take two to three months for my bone marrow to regenerate the, the red and white blood cells and for my, my blood to, you know, for me to be back to normal. And I could tell something was off because those first days I experienced profound breathlessness. I couldn't walk from my bedroom to the bathroom without gasping for air. And then uh, I guess it was day 15, I think, I had a doctor appointment. They did a lot of blood work. This was after I was out of the hospital. And the physician looked at the numbers for my blood work, and she said, "There's, uh, I see there's a mistake on your blood work. And I said, what is it? She said, your numbers are literally textbook perfect all down the line. I said, well, that's not a mistake. I'm back on my bike again. I'm walking. I'm fine. And she said, what? You're bike riding again? I said, well, very slowly. I'm taking it slow. But... Uh, th that's impossible and there's a medical belief that it takes two to three months because you know all the processes to go in there but it did happen in two weeks and that's when i knew we were on we were on god's timetable and yeah i did i immediately started selling off everything and you know i i had i'd been married to a man who liked stuff i had a lot of stuff furniture and stuff you know things like that so before i sold like something i had inherited from my from my mom i because i had dragged some of this stuff around for 20 years you know house to house to house to house to house i would stand in front of this thing like my mama's red couch i'd stand in front of it and one it was a couch where my mama and i had had so many beautiful conversations i thought how do you sell that couch and i thought the way you sell it is because you have the memories you don't need the thing you have the spiritual joy of it you don't need the material manifestation of the thing but i stood in front of that couch and i said god this red couch has been such a blessing in my life in my mother's life 
but now it's time for it to bless somebody else. So send me the person that's going to love it as much as I love it. Send me the person who's going to say, I am so grateful to have this couch. And I put an ad on a social media marketplace and I met so many cool people. I ended up going out to lunch with some of these people and they, I did, I made lots of new friends, but I did. I blessed every item and just said, God, thank you for this item. Thank you for allowing me to experience the beauty and the joy and the comfort. And, you know, I, I thought about the spiritual qualities of everything I sold. Like when I sold, I sold backyard furniture, patio furniture, and I would think, what are the spiritual qualities? And I thought, well, it's comfort. It's enjoying nature. It's beauty. It's, uh, it's being outside with nature. And I thought, okay, these are spiritual qualities that somebody else is really going to want. They're going to find it desirable. So I did. I sold everything. And then I loaded up my, I, I had to go, I bought a little uh, used Prius. And then I loaded it up with the remnant of my earthly belongings. And I got to tell you, there has never been a day when I said, ooh, I wish I still had that thing. I'm so grateful to be shed of all that stuff. All right, Rosemary, so you wrote an amazing book based on your experience. Could you share that book with us today? I could. The title is Remembering the Light, How Dying Saved My Life. And my website is temporarydeath.com. And you can also contact me through my website. Because as I often say, I wasn't nearly dead. This was not an NDE where, you know, near-death experience. I went over and I came back. That's a temporary death, hence the website. So do you have a physical book on file or with you right now? What? Oh, you have to That's speak. my book. Yay. I don't know if you can see, but it's, it's it came out real pretty. I'm pretty pleased. Remembering the life, yes. how dying saved my life. And where could Correct. our viewers find it? The world's biggest bookstore. Amazon. Amazon. Yes. <laughs> All right. So your life is completely changed. So it is. Could you do us a favor? Sure. Could you pray for so many people out there who experienced loss due to suicide and those who even maybe battling terminal illness like you were, could you just pray for them for healing, not only for their body, but for their spirit and soul as well and their mind? Hmm. Well, let me, let me preface it by saying this. Um, one of the things I've observed is when I hear a story about somebody passing on or know of somebody who's passed on, I think I know where you are and I'm going to try not to be envious, but I know where you are and I know, I know whose you are and I know what you're experiencing. And so I, I don't cry when I see a hearse go by, which I used to. I just think now, wow, you know, you're, you left everything behind that's worldly and ugly and hard and dark. And now you're in the presence of the original. And I just feel, I don't know, I feel so happy for him. And, you know, that's very, it's fairly common among people who have been to heaven. And the other common experience about people who've been to heaven and got yanked back is uh, I was just reading about, or actually hearing about this the other day, is it's not uncommon to be depressed. And uh, one last thing I want to share very briefly is when my when I was in the hospital and my friends would come and stay with me in the hospital to make sure you don't end up with a kidney transplant or something, you know, and every now and then they'd have to leave the room. And when they left the room, the angels would appear at my bedside and sing me the most beautiful songs. And I would tell the angels, I'm really good at houses, which was my vocation. Uh, I'm not so good at melody and lyrics. I'm not going to be able to remember this. And the music was so beautiful. And the angels would tell me, this is not for you to remember. This is for your peace, this is for your joy, this is for your healing, and this is a thank you for coming back. And they said, we know how hard it is to be back on earth after you have seen heaven. And that meant so much to me. So uh, the prayer, oh my gosh, I think you caught me flat-footed here. Uh, let me give it a go. So, dear Heavenly Father, for those who are hurting and suffering and feeling the burdens of the world so heavy on them, May they know how to turn to you and feel that peace that passeth all understanding. And may they know what Jesus spoke of when he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we can experience God's love in the here and now. It is not something that we have to wait for heaven to experience. May we all learn how to 
see the love of God in everyone's eyes and be the love of God for others. And may the helpers in the world be divinely guided to do the right thing at the right time. And may those who are suffering be led to the helpers. And may the people facing terminal illness understand that if they, if they knew what was waiting for them, all fear would be washed away. I pray these things in the good and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who died and rose again on the third day. And he knows a whole lot about resurrection power. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Rosemary. Thank you so much for this interview. Oh, you glad to do it. Are you looking for some deep believing, bold quoted Christian t-shirts, hoodies, or sweaters? Look no further. Visit myjesusfriend.com to get 10% off whatever you want when you enter promo code BELIEVER21. That's www.myjesusfriend.com.